You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rookshane Fernando is also known as Real Rookshane on X and YouTube. And he's a former wedding videographer who, through the lockdowns under Dan Andrews in Melbourne, found his business and livelihood under threat. Outraged by what he was seeing happening, he took his skills to the street and recorded harrowing excesses from the Andrews regime, where police were shooting, pepper spraying and tear gassing citizens for peacefully protesting. He's managed to get past immigration and is in New Zealand to support Avi Yemeni as he launches his book. He's with me now. You made it through customs and immigration this time, Rukshan. That's right, man. That's right, mate. Good to be on here. Uh, I did make it through customs this time. There was no interesting questions asked at the check-in in Melbourne this time around. So good to be here in New Zealand without any issues. Straight through. And you're having a bit of a holiday first before you hit the book launches on Friday and Saturday? That's right. Yeah. Just traveling around and exploring a bit of the country. Uh, last time I came was my first time in New Zealand, but I didn't really get to travel around because everything kind of got cut short. But this time I'm spending a bit of time, uh, particularly traveling around the South Island. You got family with you? Uh, just my just my partner, my wife, she's with me. So we're making a little bit of a holiday of this. Oh, fantastic. Because you've, uh, you've been pretty uh, donkey deep in recording the excesses of the Dan Andrews regime. Uh, and uh, it's been pretty intense. So I guess you've looking for, been looking forward to a decent holiday. Yeah, this is actually our first kind of holiday together. So since that stuff went down in 2020, uh, like you said, I've been uh, in the deep end of all of this, and a lot of all of that, a lot of that happened inadvertently. And since that time, obviously, I started covering other issues in our country as well, in terms of politics and a few other overseas trips. But all that ended up being for journalism work, not necessarily for a holiday. So uh, it has taken an interesting twist in my life since all of this kind of stuff went down in Melbourne or around the world, to be honest. Yeah. Well, New Zealanders might not be totally familiar with you, though, but the awake people are because we were watching what Dan Andrews was doing while Jacinda Ardern was doing exactly the same thing to us. And, uh, you know, maybe if you just give us a little bit of a background, you you were a wedding vid- videographer before the pandemic, weren't you? That's right. I was happily for about, you know, 12 years at that time had been happily working in my wedding business. So, um, and that's a booming market in in Australia. And uh, so I'd been very busy with that, very happy. And obviously that all got cut short, um, which at the, at, the, at the beginning of all of it was kind of, you know, in an interesting way, it was like a break almost from working so much. Uh, so, you know, a month or so was like, oh, this is kind of interesting, right? And I think a lot of people were in that situation, you know, a month of watching Netflix, whatever it is, and you go back to work. But that's not how it turned out, especially in in Melbourne here with these uh, endless lockdowns, uh, so, so many restrictions. We couldn't leave outside our five kilometer radius. Obviously, weddings, uh, any type of thing like funerals, any, anything that involved human interaction and people was cut out by the government, was cancelled. Um, so, you know, I find myself uh, at home and I'm someone that likes to obviously work. So this really gave me an opportunity to explore uh, other interests in my life where some people might have taken up cooking and all this kind of stuff. I took up a passion of my life uh, in my life, which is around independent journalism and using my skills uh, to cover some of the, uh, you know, crazy stuff that I saw happening in my, in my city. And that really uh, went from uh, one thing to another uh, when I started going to these protests, because 
at these protests is really when the people in Melbourne came out onto the streets because they were dissatisfied with what was happening in their city. Um, and that a lot of that had to do with the fact that the governments were not being transparent and they were not being accountable to the people. They were just willy-nilly making mistakes, uh, not apologizing, just going down this path of just, you know, uh, not caring for people like uh, businesses or families and really just leaving it up to people just to be stuck at home in the blind while they continue to just, you know, rule over us with no end in sight. And uh, as those frustrations boiled over here in Melbourne, um, I spent a lot of time telling those stories and capturing what was happening out on the streets. Yeah, and those uh, those images that you were live streaming were unprecedented, really, for Australia and New Zealand, where we had a, a militarised police force. Now, in Victoria, the police carry guns as a matter of course, as a, as a routine. It's on their hip all the time. But this was a, another level of militarization, wasn't it? Oh, definitely. This was like, um, you know, they had these things called bobcats, which were like almost like, uh, you know, like a Humvee-style uh, American militarized vehicle, all decked out in black with uh, cops hanging off it in, you know, wearing military-style armor uh, with these massive, I guess, rifles or uh, weapons of some sort. Uh, rolling down the streets uh, in, to, to an unarmed population <laughs> of, mm. of of peaceful Australians, uh, as far as I was seeing, practicing their democratic, uh, God-given right in this country, uh, their constitutional rights to express political uh, dissent and uh, you know protest, uh, which is something that we do in our nations and something that we pride ourselves in the West. But like you said, the scenes that we were seeing were unprecedented. Uh, it's stuff that I would expect you know, in uh, developing nations, in third world countries, where you have these military junters just ruling over people and, uh, you know, shutting down all forms of dissent. Here we are seeing it in our countries. uh, And it was just uh, very, very uh, confronting is probably the word. And, you know, the first time it really hit me really hard was when I saw uh, these weapons being used against protesters who were unarmed. Uh, they were firing, fi- firing these rubber pellets or whatever they were firing at people. But just the fact that they were firing at people in Melbourne, you know, in, in front of our you know iconic Flinders Street station there, mm. the police just like started opening up fire on on protesters, and it was just crazy scenes uh, that I'd never expected to see in Melbourne of all places. Yeah, I used to live in Melbourne, and so I know that area really, really well. And uh, you know, normally it's the hub; everyone gets off the off the train at Flinders Station and walks to where they're going, and it's a vibrant city and all that. And we had this ghost town, but with people protesting and saying, "Enough's enough. We've had enough of this." And then the strong arm of the state literally coming in and shooting at people, walloping them, um, tear gassing them, pepper spraying them. Yeah, uh, and yeah. and it was crazy. Like I think I think a lot of that was done honestly because. At a certain point, even for me, having observed how these protests built up, more and more people were coming. And it's sad to think that the government and the police did that to instill even more fear in people. Like they deliberately did that. They they deliberately shot people, not because they were doing something wrong. They used those weapons. They used those tactics to put fear into people so that more people don't come out to express support for the people that were out there already protesting. Uh, it was really just something that you wouldn't see in a Western liberal democracy. So uh, quite disgraceful, in my opinion. 
And is it at those protests that you encountered and met Avi Yemeni? That's right. Yeah. No, very early on, I would see, I'd known Avi's work from obviously online and I would see him here and there at these protests, but we didn't have too much interaction early on in the protests uh, because everyone, everything was just happening so rapidly. But the more and more you started going to these protests, uh, what happened at a certain point in Melbourne was as the, uh, you know, the police measures became more hardcore, uh, there were fewer and few, fewer people going out at a certain point. So it was a small group of independent journalists, particularly like myself and Avi Yemeni from Rebel News, uh, who were there at these protests. So we would inadvertently, of course, be in each other's um you know, working together in some instances, almost as a shield, because you had to protect yourself in terms of if police would come arrest you or, you know, they'd strike you with something, who knows? So we're kind of filming each other. It's, it was almost like for safety in numbers in terms of mm. working together in that independent media press pack, uh, because the, the mainstream journalists, like they were nowhere to be seen at many of these protests. So you, there was a bit of that camaraderie there that I built up over that time with Avi, definitely. Uh- I was watching those live streams and was shocked to see that the mainstream media appeared to be behind the police lines rather than in front of them. And it was people like Avi and yourself and, and a few others that were uh, actually on the other side of the, of the police lines with the protesters uh, recording the excesses and, and actually getting in harm's way yourself. Mm. Um, and I can remember, I think it was you sticking a camera in, in one uh, mainstream journalist's face and he was like telling you off at, for doing yeah. your job. You know, I just couldn't yeah. believe that. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that going on. The media were pretty much there just liaising with the police, uh, getting the police's perspective on everything, which is fine. Like that's a part of the story as well. Mm. Uh, the police wouldn't necessarily liaise with us but we were there getting the people's story. And I thought in that instance, in that moment, the people's story is probably what's more more important and more interesting, even for people watching home on the news. Uh, there's no point as a journalist going out there and just uh, verbatim, just repeating what the police tell you, right? You, you might as well just go out there and uh, talk to the people on the street and ask why they're there. Uh, not just make assumptions, because what the media was were doing was standing behind police lines saying, hey, look, those people are out here. They shouldn't be out there. The police are saying they're bad people. Uh, and then they would go out in the nighttime uh, night news and report that almost uh, per word as what the police would tell them. Whereas if you spoke to the people, they, these weren't bad people. These were people who are out of work. These are people who are frustrated because, you know, they have loved ones stuck overseas. These are people who who didn't want to be forced into you know, these vaccine mandates, what, whatever it was, these are just ordinary uh, people in the city of Melbourne who were who were having these issues with the government and how everything was going. And the fact that the media were not interested in their stories during that time uh, shows you uh, just it's just a very sad indictment, really, of the mainstream media today and how easy it is for them just to hide behind police and pretend they're doing their job. And the mainstream media still don't acknowledge the wrong that they were doing instead of holding the powerful to account they were acting in many cases as snitches for the for the for the state for yeah. the police um you know i can i can remember one uh protest which was led by the uh the cfmeu um you know these are you know labor constituents these are hardcore workers 
and they were protesting, uh, you know, quite vociferously. And then the police moved in and started walloping these these hardcore union guys, and it turned into a bit of biffo. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah. I don't, I don't think the police, you know, really understood what they were doing or why they were doing it. They were just ordered to do it, and it's like we learned nothing from history. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of that. Some interactions that I had with the police and just observing the police talking with protesters, you could see that, you know, there was one uh, classic example here in Melbourne where a policeman was telling a protester, you know, we don't want to be out here, but we're here because this is our job and we've got to look after our families. And the protester was telling the cop, well, I'm out here because I don't have a job and I want to look after my family. So it was almost like the police had been turned against the people and, uh, you know, they were doing their job. That's 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 the excuse they gave. But uh, that kind of justified it for them, which is in reality, like you said, going back to history, those things shouldn't justify people and police acting in that manner towards the public. Uh, but you saw the government, their classic example of them turning uh, people against people, uh, you know, the police against people. This, everyone was the same in that in that in that instance. But you had people with jobs like the police uh, allowed to be out there uh, to enforce these crazy draconian you know, measures that sometimes even today, I can't imagine that we actually had those things when we walk mm. around so freely in our cities and towns without these issues, but it happened. And yeah, I, 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 I can't, it's, it, it's still something I'm grappling with, but it's actually, you know, something that concerns me because it can, shows me that it's possible again at a, in an instance for that switch to be turned on uh, because I don't think those lessons have been learned. They haven't been explored and even our top brass, our commissioners of police, none of these people have actually ever come out, apologized for that time, or shown any type of remorse for the actions that their officers took. But speaking to individual members of the police force, a lot of them are remorseful for the things that they were did and they were made to do. Uh, but again, they did those things regardless. Yeah, I mean, you're a dinky die Aussie, really. And reading, you know, a bit of your history, I've had a look at a bit of a hit job on the age where they, uh, <laughs> where they um, try and uh, describe yourself as a far right activist. Um, but but your family's from Sri Lanka, is that that's correct, isn't it? Yeah, my my family's are uh, migrated to Australia from Sri Lanka, and so you, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So so you understand probably better than most people what sectarian violence looks like and yeah. how you how you can get there and it never ends well yeah no definitely like you know when i when, even when i travel to sri lanka now I, I you know i'm very proud of that country i love that country but when i'm there i know the police is corrupt i know the government is corrupt and i know the people who are the ordinary people have a rough go of it and in australia i never ever felt like that um, but, you know, until very recently, of course, when all these things went down, then I understood what people in countries like Sri Lanka uh, and so on go, 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 go up against. And I understood what their lives are actually like in that small snapshot that we experienced here in the West. So that gave me a really great perspective on what it's like in, you know, growing up in a country like that, because I've always been privileged to grow up in a country like Australia or you know, in New Zealand, whatever it is. It's amazing. We have all these, you know, freedoms that we cherish, but we we can't take it for granted because once you lose that, there is something that uh, can't be recreated. And in countries like Sri Lanka, those things have been lost a long time ago. 
uh, it's very hard for the people to regain those things. So for me today, as someone who has that perspective and also being an Australian and, you know, um, understanding the privileges that I have in that country, it, it gives me a different worldview and it makes me even more uh, staunch in my uh, defense of those rights and liberties because I see it as so valuable that I don't want to take it for granted. So I feel like there is a segment in our, you know, in our countries in the West here who take these things for granted and they believe that these things have always just existed and they don't understand that, you know, a long time ago, uh, certain people fought for these type of rights yeah. and uh, they, 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 they sacrificed a lot. And they didn't do all of that so we could just turn our backs and walk away from it when the government, you know, wanted to abuse those rights. We have a, um, you know, a duty as a, as a population, uh, as a collective to preserve those rights. And it's in these moments like, you know, what happened during the pandemic where those rights are tested is when we have to stand up and be counted. And I really felt during that time that I was doing, you know, something in that fashion. I mean, it's a valuable lesson, but sadly we saw during the pandemic that the vast majority of the populations of New Zealand and Australia went along to get along, and there were very few people who actually stood up and said, no, actually, you know what, guys, the, these are human rights. These are our inalienable rights that you're trampling on for what is essentially a, a, a bad cold. Hmm. And... uh but but it scares me. It still scares me today at how easy it was for our governments to move to totalitarianism. And I thought, you know, studying history, that this sort of thing would never happen in our countries, and yet it did. And it happened in in Victoria in the most appalling, brutal way. It happened in New Zealand in the most appalling, brutal way as well. And it just shocks me to my core that we've got these people walking around saying that was the right thing to do. Yeah. I mean, you would think that after seeing everything, people would have a bit more of an understanding of what actually happened during that time. Uh, I think we have comforts here in, in these countries in the West where, you know, things are almost taken care of. So we had a lot of, you know, these government programs during that time to offer support for people, even though they didn't have work and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but and then you had this whole kind of, you know, this uh, bureaucratic laptop class of people who were working from home and didn't really resonate with the the working class who were put out of work. And these these comforts that people are given, it uh, as particularly like the whole welfare state thing, where we're like governments, like, oh, we'll give you we'll give you money to stay home. You know, if you test positive, we'll give you money. I'm not sure exactly what they did in New Zealand. Yeah, that's exactly that, what they did here. That's that's what they're doing in Australia. So these these comforts make us feel like we are a, a much more of a elevated status as a society where we can forego rights because we're giving people money and benefits for taking away those rights. I'm just giving a very simplistic explanation. So for that reason, I think people are more uh, open to being abused by these governments and the governments know this and then they take advantage of this. And that's what you saw. And then when you tie that up with the influence of mainstream media and these institutions working in concert to actually fool people and not give them proper information about what's actually happening out there in the community, then they have the perfect uh, recipe for this kind of totalitarian switch that they just turn on uh, at the drop of a hat. Now, you know, it didn't happen overnight, but it happened to have progressed over a couple of uh, weeks or months here in, in Melbourne where this change happened. But, you know, it's too late. By the time, you, you, before you even know it, 
you're stuck at home. You can't walk out of you know your house within without a uh, uh, without with, with without a five kilometer radius of your house. You can't walk out. Kids can't go to the playground anymore because obviously that's off limits now. Uh, you can't uh, exercise by yourself outside without wearing a mask. So like all these things are drip fed. But once it happens, it happens. And um, you know I think we don't challenge it early on enough. And by the time that we do challenge it as a collective, uh, the powers that be with the media and so, so on uh, control that narrative and paint the people that challenge these things as you know extremists anti-vaxxers far right whatever they want to term it as and they try to control that narrative and i think you know that switch that happened during covid where people did mm. stand up that is why now you're seeing governments in australia and so on uh, work on these type of disinformation misinformation bills where they want to take even more control of the media and target you know people like myself independent media rv yemeni yep. and so on uh to control the flow of information because they they do see that over time if people are exposed to the ideas uh of other people who are telling them a different perspective or giving them an alternative angle uh then their control is not as much as they thought it would be so there 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 is something there but overall uh if if things stay how they are the government definitely can turn on that totalitarian totalitarian switch at the drop of a hat if they wanted to well they've proved it haven't they 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 know mm. how to do it and they know how to uh manipulate the vast majority of people to do what they want and that's right one one thing i know about politicians being with 40 years of commenting on them and being involved in politics is they love power like a heroin addict loves needles and uh they just like using it whenever they can and if you if you don't stop and say to them enough you know you can't do that and you don't stand up then you've lost a little bit and a little, by a little bit and a little bit and a little bit a little bit it's all gone and then you're under total state control and uh you know i cannot believe that uh, that these places in the west just fell for all of this nonsense and you know you see people like the 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 world economic forum and you've been to davos you've confronted mm. these elites on the street what do they have to say when you ask them questions ah oh, i think they're a bit offended that you're actually even there asking these type of questions because they're just always used to controlling the environment right it's it's their own little world it's their little bubble uh everyone else is a surf outside their you know kingdom type type system that's what they've got set up there so even something like davos i mean that's so hard to get to for the average person that's like a very remote t- style thing that they do where they're flying with their private jets and have this little get together um you know it's meant to be uh exclusive for them and not inclusive of everyone else um and these are of course people that go on about inclusion and diversity and also and so on but when it comes to uh, controlling power uh it's they're not very diverse or inclusive of other people right so i mean these people yeah i got haven't got much to say about them uh, which is nice i understand why there is institutions like this and why um you know certain governments and stuff might want to work with these institutions but i think the secrecy that they do these things in and the fact that um uh, the government involvement itself uh isn't so uh at least for, as what my understanding for the australian politicians uh isn't so transparent uh yeah. the type of influence that they they're having on policy um i think that's something that needs to be checked into a lot more by the mainstream journalists which don't seem to do this at all 
Yeah, um, and it, then it, the, the, the job does fall onto journalists like Avi Yemeni who were out there. I think he, he was questioning Albert Berla last year, yeah. the, the, C, the CEO of Pfizer. I mean, that guy looked like he's never received questions like that in his life. And he does media interviews. He goes on mainstream channels. But you can tell it's all very scripted. Uh, there's a set of things that they touch on. And it's, you know, they're just rubbing each other's backs. But once you actually confront these people on the street, all of a sudden they're running scared. They don't want to answer just very basic, legitimate questions that the public would have. And these are people who are uh, these companies like Pfizer who are signing these massive contracts with our governments, uh, mm. telling people to get their products, but they won't uh, be transparent with the members of the public themselves. The CEOs are, are hidden behind these, you know, impenetrable almost um uh you know um, fences that, that that are there that you can't question them on certain topics so i think it's great that independent journalists are there uh more and more now at, at events like davos and, and are digging into these things because it's making them uncomfortable and i think when they're uncomfortable uh that's better than them just hiding up there being comfortable and dictating what's going to happen next for our lives out here in the uh, everyday normal world that we all live in yeah, there's a few detractors out there about what you do, what I do, what Avi Yemeni does, what what Israel Event does, and they 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 put out uh, you know videos saying that Rebel News is controlled opposition, that Rukshan Fernando is controlled opposition. You would never be able to film where you did at Davos unless somebody was giving you permission to do that. What what do you say to those people who make those accusations? Ah, look, I I think it's all, all all a bunch of nonsense. Like, especially when I hear that now, like I hear the craziest conspiracies about myself, and and it gives me a lot of perspective on when I hear things about other people as well that people are saying. I I don't believe uh, many things I hear about people in that sense. Uh, you know, things like Davos or a, any kind of thing, particularly things in the West. What people have to understand is it's not as closed off as it appears to be. Mm. Uh, it, the 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 reason that something like Davos is not attended by a lot of people is it's very hard to access because of the, of where it is. Yeah, uh, you have to make the effort to get to Switzerland. Uh, you have to make the effort then to you know uh, get accommodation near there. Then you have to drive to that area, and then you then you try to do what you can as a journalist. So those limitations is what makes it inaccessible for people um in the west in the in these type of things now if if we were for instance you know being flown flown into north korea and uh, covering king jong-un or something like that and it looked it appeared that we were giving access to access to all these places then yes maybe you could make an argument that there's something uh, strange going on in there but if if you're if you're attending stuff something as a journalist in the west uh where it's easily accessible you can just fly into the country then you're just doing the basic act of doing journalism. And the the reason that mainstream media gets to go there is because they're well-funded. Now, luckily, uh, outfits like Rebel uh, Rebel News, because of uh, because of them, I was able to go there because they were mm. able to fund the journey of independent journalists thanks to their subscriber base and people who support them. Yeah. So it's through, it's through that type of venture that independent media like myself and Avi Yemeni are able to be there and cover these type of stories. So I think there's a disconnect because... You know, you can. You, people need to understand that you need to have traditional, independent-style journalists at these events. And just because they go there, it doesn't not mean they're controlled opposition. Uh, a lot of the time, they're just providing an alternative opinion, and it's just to challenge uh, the mainstream narrative. It's not necessarily to say that the opinions or the the stories that we're doing are the you know 
the exact correct uh, opinion or version of the event. It's an alternative viewpoint from what we observed and from the questions we are asked. And it's all out there for people to see. And it's just so people can uh, make their own judgment many of the times. And I think it's a great disservice that, uh, you know, that the media and everyone else is doing to independent media by calling uh, these type of journalists controlled opposition or, you know, one of the classic words they use is grifters. Yeah. Uh, because people, you know, like RV Yemeni and Rebel News and stuff, they depend on the user base supporting them. And that's totally fine. <laughs> right. That's how it should be. People send uh, all sorts of money to people sitting at home playing video games on their computer, yeah. adding no value at all to society. Uh, but here we have people supporting journalists to go out there and do fundamental journalistic style work. And that is just a style of, um, fundraising that sometimes we have to do in today's world and i think uh i'm i'm totally comfortable with that and i don't care too much for what people are saying um about this because i think it's very important work that needs to be done what you talk seem to be talking about there is this polarization that's occurred in society where you're either with the prevailing narrative or against it and this politics comes into even journalism. And I suspect that you and I have a very different worldview on our politics. You know, I'm a conservative person who's always supported, you know, until recently, conservative politicians and polit- conservative political parties. Uh, you've been a Labour voter in, uh, in Victoria and in mm. Australia. But the pandemic kind of threw people like you and I together we we might not share the same worldview on politics, but we share the same view on important freedoms. And it's kind of, in my mind, it seems to have broken the right versus left narrative. And we're, we're now in a position where people like ourselves are documenting the fight between those who support freedom and those who wish to restrict freedom. Yeah, it's become very polarizing just to kind of give a bit more background on that. So my parents have always been Labour voters um, and I kind of grew up in that environment, but I've always been a bit more in terms of the Liberal Party here. So a bit more leaning towards conservatism. And today I'm more openly, more openly that. But in terms of the divide and how polarizing it is, there, there is literally people now like who would traditionally have uh, fought against, you know, something like this misinformation censorship style bills that they're introducing into our countries they would have fought against these things on principle, but because they believe that it will somehow defeat the rise of the right or the far right, however they want to term it, and these are the people that we want to stop them uh, from having influence online. So because it will defeat them, we are happy to forego our principles and support the government in censoring everyone just to defeat them. And that's how kind of the world has become now where it's no longer about people on their principles and doing things which are right by society as a whole. It's more so about, you know, ideologically, how will this benefit, uh, you know, at the current point, uh, my political ideological leanings. And I think that's a dangerous place to be. And I think governments, in, in you know, they, they, they take advantage of this type of thing. Uh, they understand what this is. Uh, you see this in America all the time. You see all their three-letter agencies, they take advantage of this. The media takes advantage of this. And at the end of the day, whether you're left or right, whatever political spectrum you're on, you get screwed over by this. Uh, because uh, more and more what's happening is the government is just um, solidifying their own power 
through legislation and <laughs> it's to everyone else's detriment. So I think we should unite on a lot of different topics. And I think it's great that we do have, uh, you know, these uh, fierce debates and that we don't agree on everything. Uh, yeah. Usually the benefit of our, our systems of government is the fact that we land somewhere in the middle on most issues. Uh, it's not doesn't really, you know, it's not about going one mm. way or the other. It might go one way for a while and it might then, you know, switch over as society changes. That is a, a, a wonderful thing, but you can't have that without having these fierce debates and discussions. And the fact that that's people trying to just silence that from happening at all, uh, I think is very dangerous territory because the people that come into that space are, of course, again, uh, governments, institutions, you know, World Economic Forums, the UN, all these kind of institutions, uh, which have uh, a different style of, uh, you know, controlling these uh, type of activities and they will do it. And, uh, you know, all we have as people is the fact that we can argue and debate with each other and come to a, a satisfactory type of result, <laughs> so-called democracy. I think we need to preserve that as much as we can. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. We need to have more courageous discourse where we disagree with each other but can through that discourse, through that communication, come to uh, an agreement on what should be protected and what should be fought for. And censorship is something that I find appalling because censorship leads to totalitarianism. Uh, When, you know, freedom dies uh, in in silence, when, when you are shut down and you can't talk and you can't, uh, you know, d- debate these issues. If you are shut down, then your freedom is slowly dying in and in silence because you're not allowed to speak. And um, I think we need to, you know, almost wreck the political system in some way, you know, not talking about violently, of course, but it mm. needs to be some sort of change that happens in society where opinions are valued again rather than devalued or ridiculed or marginalised. Um, because marginalization again leads to uh, segregation, which leads to polarization, which leads to ultimately violence, which we've seen all around the world, places like Sri Lanka, Rwanda, mm. you know, the Congo, various different places where there's these conflicts because of excesses of one p- particular you know, persuasion of view. Um mm. I find I still find it astonishing that we ended up where we did, you know, in the pandemic in Australia, in New Zealand, you know, can-do countries that descended into totalitarianism in a heartbeat, mm. in a heartbeat, and um, and I think those courageous discourses need to occur more often, more frequently, and that's why, you know, I look at what you uh, do and what Avi does and what Ezra is trying to do. Um, and I just value those people and you know follow them and support where I can and do all of those things because I think that we're all doing valuable work. It, there's not enough of us. That's the problem. You know, we, we need to get that message out. And I guess, I guess that's why you're here in New Zealand. Um, you know, with Arby's book launch on uh, on Friday and Saturday in Auckland and Wellington. Yeah, that's why I'm here. I'm here to support RV Yemeni, of course. Yeah. Um, I'm here to support journalists like this. And I'm here to support just more people, like you said, getting on board and doing uh, things like this. Uh, you know, we are so fortunate and we are so lucky to have the technological advancements where we're able to do this type of work. Um, and, you know, we should take advantage of that. There is a massive 
uh, fight on our hands in terms of who controls this type of power. Um, and I'm saying in really around issues like censorship, I think that is the next frontier. Uh, yeah. That is where a lot of this battle will be fought um, because you know, I'm not sure if you guys have a misinformation, disinformation bill we here do. in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah we do. So, right. So I see that what's happening in Australia as one of the biggest threats to everything because the moment they can control speech, uh, the moment the government can decide what is right and wrong, uh, there is no future protest. There is no future dissent on anything. Like that is the ultimate form of control. Um, and people might laugh at us when, you know, we bring up 1984, this novel and George Orwell and all this kind of stuff. And people are like, oh, you know, conspiracy theorists and stuff. Actually, you know, that's what's happening. And it's very, it's happening, uh, very in our face. It's happening in our face. And, uh, if we don't uh, fight back against this and f- have, uh, uh, just, uh, just enough, enough control there as the public to have independent media, to have alternative media, uh, to challenge mainstream media, to challenge government, to do these things, uh, then we're losing in today's world because uh, information is everything. And this this war on information that's been waged by governments and institutions is a war that people have to stand up to because uh, we are the biggest losers if uh, you know we don't, we don't maintain some of that control in our hands as well. So this technology that we have, we have to uh, ensure that uh, the government doesn't have their overreaching arms in it. Now, I know big tech, they have their own types of mm. censorship, uh, but that is very different to when the government has that control. So that, that's what people need to understand. Just because Facebook or you know, Inst- um, you know, Twitter or X, whatever might censor you, is not the same thing as when the government with the power of the state and the power of the courts and the power of law enforcement has that same power. So I think you know that's the biggest fight on our hands. And that's why I'm here uh, supporting RV Yemeni and others like him and you guys and everyone like this, because I feel like, you know, we are at a, at a, a crossroads in this mission to ensure that uh, our voices continue to be heard in this space. That's the thing, isn't it? Because the mainstream media let society down quite badly. And yes. they seem to not want to either be forgiven or to even say sorry for what they did. And, you know, if you actually confront them and talk to them, they say, oh, I'm proud of what we did. Mm. And what they did is became the mouthpieces of the government, propagandists, yes. uh, corporate shills. They call us grifters, <laughs> but they were all in receipt of large amounts, of millions course. and millions of dollars of government funding, government yeah. advertising, and they have the cheek to criticize us who are you know, using technology, our laptops, our microphones, our portable equipment, to do what these multi-million dollar corporations that are part of the system, they yeah. actually have become the elites themselves. That's right. And, and, they, and they really don't like it when we get up them. And No, uh, I t- yeah. I'll tell you what, like, you know, we in the West, we look at countries, let's say something's happening in Iran, there's a protest happening in Iran, and you see this footage coming from a mobile phone from an independent journalist. You have these Western journalists. They're like, "Oh, this is amazing! Look at this! Look at this journalist putting himself out there." Because because the state media, they're getting funding from the you know Iranian regime, and they're not going to say anything bad about Iran. But it's these these people on the ground that are getting this information out to us. You know how wonderful you have the Facebook and Twitter saying, "Oh, we're going to ensure that those services remain available despite the government trying to shut it down." So we act all high and mighty and moral mm. uh, when it comes to these kind of instances. But what is so sad is 
our own governments and these companies and the mainstream media actually turn against their own people uh, when push comes to shove. And that is what happened during that time. You know, we were watching stuff from people's mobile phones yeah. when this, you know, heavily funded media, I think in New Zealand, they were they received massive grants from the government yep. to do what? To cover the stories or to just uh, spill out government propaganda? You know, we know what happened, but, you know, they use that money for, you know, I'm, I'm just alleging here to spread government propaganda as far no, as I'm concerned. There's no alleging. That's exactly okay. what they did. That's what they did, right? <laughs> But, you know, uh, why not use that funding to actually go out there and speak to people that have a different viewpoint, to speak to doctors or scientists that have a different viewpoint? Uh, what was there something stopping them from doing that? Like, you know what I mean? Like, this is the choices that these people made and their choices that, like you said, they're elites. They're looking down on the rest of us. They know what's best. The government tells them what's best. The institutions tell them what's best. And they're happy with that. These 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 journalists, these ma- mainstream organizations, they're no longer this fourth estate. Uh, they, they, they're they a part of, uh, they're an arm of the government. And, you know, we, we again, we confront state media in, this, in these uh, dictatorial style countries. But really, we have a form of state controlled media uh, in the West, and we have to come to terms with that. Um, we have to really come to terms with that. And I think we have to educate the rest of the public on that as well, that actually, even though these corporations, they might seem separate from the state, they are so intertwined with them, uh, it's not funny. <laughs> so that is why it's so important. Again, independent media, alternative media, uh, crowdsourced media, media funded by the people, uh, for the people, uh, having that alternative perspective, I'm not saying it's always the the BNN end all of what is the correct information or whatever. Those are things that can be disputed and challenged by everyone else around you. But having that alternative perspective adds a lot of value to society, and we need to ensure that people recognize this. Yeah, I can see that you are very passionate about this. In fact, you're not doing uh, wedding videos anymore, are you? You're just concentrating on the journalism. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I, I well, the, the wife is taking care of the the business. Yeah, and uh, I do participate in, uh, you know, working on the weekends at weddings, uh, here and there. But uh, I am focusing on this type of work because, you know, Australia, New Zealand, we're interesting countries in in the sense that we are smaller in population and size uh, compared to somewhere like the US yeah. and the and the UK, where there is a lot of alternative media and alternative voices, uh, with a lot of support. Uh, to grow that in our countries is a, it's a lot harder, I think, yeah. and to actually and to break those barriers and give people an alternative is a lot harder. Um, and you know, I just see myself as uh, not doing anything noble, but just doing my part, uh, trying my best to uh, have alternative things out there in terms of alternative voices. Really, yeah, uh, it's not it's not always about uh, you know I can't as an, an individual cover every single story uh, that's happening, but I will pick. A subject where I feel the media is not giving it a fair go, yeah. And I'm gonna, then, then I'll attempt to show people, hey, this is what these other people who are in this story are saying. You know, look at both things and make up your mind about what you think is right, or ask more questions. And you know, that's that's my approach to all of this. Yeah, it's an approach that Reality Check Radio uh, has as well, where we, you know, are giving both sides or all sides of, mm. of an argument, an issue, a debate. Uh, and let listeners uh, decide for themselves uh, based on the information that's imparted. But you can you, you can't impart that information, uh, f- you know, in the traditional corporate 
mainstream media where everything is chunked down into five minute bits. That's there's a reason why uh, we do forty five minute interviews, hour long interviews, even two hour long interviews because that time allows us to explore the breadth of issues that we've discussed today, you know, that have gone from mm. workers in the street that are, haven't got any money through to geopolitical issues like Sri Lanka and around the mm. world. You can't do that in five-minute bullet point attack pieces that the me mainstream media likes to feed us on the news. And yeah. uh, it's just insane. But, you know, I, I can see that you are enjoying uh, your new life as a as an independent journalist just as much as I'm enjoying being an independent <laughs> radio host, you know. Um, and I think if we if people like you and, and me and Avi and Ezra carry on uh, being uh, resolutely positive and infectious about the ideas that we want to share, which is about freedom, then more and more people are going to uh, are going to like what they're hearing. They're going to subscribe to our podcasts, to our mm. you know our, our X channels, our YouTube channels, mm. all of those sorts of things, and we will grow, and the mainstream media will wither. But we have to be resolute in doing that. And you know, I just want to thank you for what you did. Um, you know, during the pandemic, that you stood up. Uh, and used your considerable skills to tell a story. Um, and, you know, that's what journalists, that's what the traditional journalists did. It told, they told, they tell a story. Here's a story. And don't insert yourself into it other than to say, this is what I'm seeing, mm. you know, or this is what I'm hearing. And um, I think it's refreshing. And, um, and, uh, and I respect what you guys are doing. And that's why, um, I'm supporting the book launch as well, and I've just found out today that I'm the MC for both events. <laughs> so, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so I've been roped into that, but um, yeah. I look forward to seeing you on Friday, and thank you so much for coming on The Crunch and being with us here in New Zealand. Thanks, mate. Lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on your show. No Cheers. problem. Thank you, Rukshan. How about those amazing insights into the media landscape? Very wise words there from Rukshan, and it shows he's a true professional who cares deeply about the important role we have in the media. Don't forget to send comments on Rukshan's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy right here on RCR. 